Welcome to Word First Radio, the podcast of Word First Ministries. Tune in each week and join us as we pursue God's command to make disciples of all nations. Hey, what is up, you guys? Welcome to Word First Radio, the podcast brought to you by Word First Ministries. I am your host, Jacob O'Neill. And as always, I'm joined by my friends, Cameron and hey. Bailey. Hey. And today, we are coming at you through the power of the internet, streaming in from all the way from California, Mr. Alan Schleeman. Hey, how you doing, guys? <laughs> we should have a clapping sound effect. Yeah, I could put a big sound yeah, effect I, in there I, and post. I could hear it all the way here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Alan, good morning. How are, you, how are you doing, man? I'm doing really well. Yeah, it's a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, not Sunday morning. It's a beautiful morning. Um, yeah, here in San Diego where I live, sunny blue sky. I'm enjoying it. Mm-hmm. You're making us jealous, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the sun's just going down uh, here in Oslo. It's it's 8 p.m. here, so that's uh, about 11 o'clock for you, something like that? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's 11. That's right. Beautiful. I've heard yep. that the easiest gotcha. job in the world is a San Diego weathercaster. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and today Although it would be been, nice. It's, yeah, it, there has been a lot of rain this particular winter, more so mm. than normal, but yeah. um, I'm I'm not complaining. I mean, for the most part, we have really, really good as a Californian, you're obliged to say, but we really needed it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we really did need it, actually. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very pleasant, very mild. Mm. I don't awesome. want to move. <laughs> well, it's too late for us. But yeah. So, uh, Alan, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Super excited to get into what we're about to talk about. But for anyone who doesn't know who you are, um, people from our ascending uh, church in the U.S. and people here in Norway who might not have heard of you, why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, I work for an organization called Stand to Reason. They are based out of mm. Los Angeles. Um, it was started by a, uh, a guy named Greg Kokel, who's the president and founder of Stand to Reason, and he, he's still there. Um, uh, and uh, Stand to Reason has been around for about 30 years. I've worked for them since 2004, so almost uh, 18 or 19 years. And basically what Stand to Reason is about is training Christians uh, to be effective ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So we really take to heart that passage in 2 Corinthians 5.20 where the Apostle Paul says, you are an ambassador for Christ as though God were making his appeal through you. Mm-hmm. And so um, so that's kind of our, our main, um, uh, the passage that really kind of captures what we're trying to do, discipleship, or, in a sense. Uh, and specifically what I do is I'm kind of like a content creator um, in terms of like creating apologetics content. And I usually teach that through public speaking. So I travel all around the country and the world. In fact, I've been to Norway uh, and heading to Norway uh, next year, in fact. Ah. Um, And so I I travel to different churches and conferences and train Christians to persuasively yet graciously share their convictions. And Mm. uh, I'm kind of known for dealing with a lot of controversial topics. So. Um, the thing that I get invited the most to speak on, for example, is homosexuality and transgenderism <laughs> and all the uh, you know sexual gender identity issues uh, associated with that. And then I speak a lot on Islam and um, abortion, bioethics, so those kinds of things, you know. Wow. Uh, where everybody agrees with you on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, the easy stuff. <laughs> yeah, the easy stuff, yeah. So um, 
Yeah, so that's that's kind of what I do with Standard Reason. Of course, I also have a podcast, and I, I write articles, a couple articles every month that are posted on our website. And uh, str.org is our website, in case anyone's curious. But we have lots of free content and training in the form of uh, articles, videos, podcasts, all, all that stuff. So, yeah, that's kind of what Standard Reason does, and that's what I do mm. with STR. Um, I live, uh, as I mentioned, in San Diego. I'm married. Um, and I have two children, 18 year old and a 16 year old. So two teen, two teenagers. Mm. So <laughs> that makes life very lively for me. Yeah. My um, oldest just turned 10. Yeah. Oh, I have okay. three girls and so far they all get along, but people are glad to remind me that they'll be 13 someday. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. My daughter was, got along with everything and everyone when she was 10 as well, but now she's mm. 16 and things have changed, <laughs> but no, she's, she's great, but it, it is, uh, it is interesting how things change. <laughs> mm. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. And I, I just want to echo real quick, stand a reason. Yeah, wonderful ministry. Everything mm-hmm. I've seen is just fantastic. I read, uh, I did get a chance to read most of Tactics years ago, and that was my introduction to what Standard Reason was. Tactics is a book by Greg Kokel, founder yes. of Standard Reason, yeah. for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, but very, very one of the cool. most so, successful. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, please. I was going to say, Tactics is actually, I mean, not just because I work for Greg, but probably one of the best introductory books on apologetics, because mm-hmm. what it teaches you is how to converse and engage on apologetics-related subjects. So really, it's a book that could be applied to almost any topic that you discuss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, so, in the middle of why, when you were introducing yourself, um, you did mention you do work uh, with topics and present on topics concerning Islam. And because today is the Monday after Easter, um, uh, I hope you, everybody had a wonderful Easter Sunday. Whoever's listening to this, uh, we wanted to go ahead and do a resurrection apology now. When I say apology, I don't mean apologizing for the fact that we're Christians or believe in the resurrection, but we wanted to give uh, a good defense for good reasons why Christians believe in the resurrection. And if you're a regular viewer of the podcast, you probably know that we've shared a bunch of stories of us evangelizing to Muslims in the Glenlund area. Um, And we've had wonderful experiences doing that, but uh, we think Alan is a pretty great resource on where to begin the conversation, how to navigate the conversation. So, Alan, I wanted to go ahead and give you the floor. Uh, I think we should just jump right into it. What? Go ahead and lay out your case for the resurrection. Okay, yeah. Um, So just out of curiosity, before I answer that, would you say that this would be in the context of just generally a person who's not a believer or specifically a Muslim? Because the reason I ask that is, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's always important to know your audience. So, right. um, I mean, I do go to the Middle East a lot. And so I'm in the Middle East. Obviously, I'm presuming the person I'm, in, I'm talking to is going to be a Muslim. Uh, mm-hmm. In the States, quite likely they're not a Muslim, although sometimes I do go to Muslim neighborhoods. But um, because I think the answer is different, to, or, or I should say, the approach I would take is different depending on who I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very, very, very good, very fair question. Um, I'll tell you what. Since we're about to kind of start up regular street evangelism again in that area with a lot of Muslims in it, uh, going into the summertime, how about we do this uh, like as if we were talking to a Muslim who believes in the Quran, worships at mosque weekly. There, they and particularly in our context, they. 
more likely than not, came from the Middle East. So it's not a Norwegian who converted to Islam, born and raised in the Middle East, uh, Pakistani nationality, Muslim. So that's right. our, that'll be our audience in the summer. So how about we just go with that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, so if I'm talking to a Muslim, um, my <laughs> it's going to sound crazy, but the way I would t- typically approach that conversation, especially when I tell them, talk to them about the resurrection, is I would turn right to the Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, mm-hmm. Luke, and John, and um, and I would invite them to read Jesus and the story about Jesus in the Gospels. And of course, you could just pick any one of the resurrection narratives, John or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, um, that sounds like, well, that seems too simple and straightforward because I know what the probably obvious objection is going to be, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you bring up the objection if you want. Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. actually what I would do. So um, not just for the resurrection, but um, typically when I'm talking to a Muslim, I don't, I'm not going for the resurrection. What I'm typically trying to do with a Muslim is just introduce them to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so um, I will just go to, I mean, John three sixteen and seventeen, uh, and just you know have them read you know that passage right because it's got kind of the gospel in it. I'm sorry, uh, sixteen through eighteen. Sorry, three or three passages, mm-hmm. three verses. Um, and I'll just say, hey, you know what? Take a look at what Jesus says here about the nature of salvation. So I, now, uh, yeah, so anyway, yeah, that's uh, so great. I, I wonder if we could do this. You're probably going to tell me. Yeah, no, Alan. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's not too much trouble, I wonder if if uh, uh, because we want to relate because we so we encounter most often secular Norwegians and Europeans, and then we mm-hmm. also do a lot of evangelism in uh, Grönland, which is um, uh, mostly Muslim immigrants from North Africa and the Middle East. So I right. I uh, sort of hate to ask to you to take a bite this big, but I wonder if you could if we could maybe do both if you could give us just a general sort of secular resurrection case. And then maybe we could talk about how you might tailor that to an Islamic audience, because I know that we're really interested on um, effective ways to, to build bridges and witness to those of our neighbors. Okay. So you want me to pause on the, on how I would do it with the Muslim first and just kind of back up and just do generally, and then specifically the Muslim context. Yeah. If that's, if that's all right with the boss. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I, I just kind of think like when we have like, a skeptic, right? Like most most Muslims we talk to, like maybe haven't heard of the resurrection or just vehemently like deny it. Like just in front of you, they're like, "No, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He wasn't crucified. The gospel you can't trust the gospels." Like end a conversation, and then you have you know a more secular mindset who's more skeptical towards miracles or the supernatural, and you know kind of thinks the stories in the gospels are maybe like far fetched. So what? Why would I think Cameron brings up a really good um, kind of starting point for us? Like maybe defend it generally as well. Like what are the reasons to even believe the resurrection even happened? Yeah. So if I'm just speaking, so not in a Muslim context, I'm just talking to a person just on the street. The way mm-hmm. I typically approach the resurrection is I um, introduce them to what I what what's often called the minimal facts argument. So, the, so what that argument is, is basically it says this. Let's look at some basic facts that we know that are true surrounding the resurrection story. Like not facts that are of the resurrection, because obviously people don't believe the resurrection at this point of the conversation. But like, mm-hmm. what are some facts that are known to be true? Uh, and and there's, there's two sort of 
characteristics that these facts need to meet. Number one is they have to be well attested, like there has to be good evidence that these facts are true. And number two, mm. they have to be accepted even by skeptical non-Christian scholars. All right, so what we do is we say, well, what are some facts that like skeptical historians, atheist historians, non-Christian historians, like that they accept to be true? And there's a dozen or so of them. Um, and I can mention just five of them. And mm. then, and then once, once I point out what those five are, the next question is this. What best accounts for those five or so known facts? I mean, we could do 12, mm-hmm. but let's just make it, make it harder for us. Let's just say, let's just take five sure. facts. What best explains those five facts? And, um, and what ends up happening is all of the naturalistic explanations, by naturalistic I mean non-miraculous explanations, none of them work. Now, this question that I'm asking, what's the best explanation for these five facts, is a process of reasoning that everyone pretty much goes through on a regular basis. It's called abductive reasoning. Ab, so A-B-D, abductive reasoning. And here's how this reasoning works. Suppose you come home one day and you notice that your window is broken to your house. You notice there's some footprints on the floor. And you notice your television's missing. Okay, so you got three facts, right? Broken window, footprints, and television missing. So you ask the question, hmm, I wonder what happened. What 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 best explains those three things? Now notice you could say, well, maybe it was a tornado. The problem with the tornado explanation is that it might explain a missing television. It might even explain broken windows, right? But it's not going to explain footprints, like. Uh, that, you know, that, notice that explanation, that doesn't have explanatory power. It doesn't explain all the facts. And you might say, well, why would a tornado suck out you know, my television and not, say, I don't know, the lampshade right next to the television or something? You know? So notice that explanation is not a good explanation. It doesn't account for all the facts. It accounts for some, but not all. So it doesn't have the most explanatory power. So then you say, well, all right. Uh, probably a better explanation is that maybe there was a, a robber, right? He, he broke my window, you know, saw my TV, grabbed it, and left with it. And that, notice, that explanation explains all three facts. Mm-hmm. So we would say that the robber hypothesis is a better explanation for the facts. So that process of reasoning is called abductive reasoning. And I think most people would agree it's a legitimate form of reasoning because most mm-hmm. people kind of operate that way, right? Mm-hmm. So this is what this minimal facts argument for the resurrection is as well. You ask, well, what are some facts that we know to be true and what best explains them? So when you investigate, like what do a lot of scholars think is true about, um, about the Gospels that is surrounding the resurrection account? And so here's five that are known to be true. Number one is this. Virtually every scholar agrees that Jesus Christ died because of the rigors of crucifixion. Like that's actually a well-known um, fact that even um, skeptical atheist scholars will attest. Uh, John Dominic Crossan, by the way, who is a um, uh, he's part of this thing called the Jesus Seminar. These people are the ones who, around Easter, all the all the magazines and news media will interview them, and these people love to say, "Oh, the resurrection is fantasy." You know, Jesus' mm. 
body was probably buried in a shallow grave and eaten by wild dogs, you know. But even this guy who, who thinks the resurrection's bogus will say that Jesus was crucified and killed is as sure as anything can ever be. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we know Jesus mm-hmm. died of crucifixion. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, a lot of um, secular non-Christian scholars attest to that. Number two, we know that the tomb was found to be empty a few days after his, his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, not as many non-Christian scholars attest to that, but there's still a large majority. Okay. Um, the third fact is that um, after Jesus died, many of his followers had experiences where they believed they met the resurrected Jesus, or they, they mm-hmm. thought they, they met and had an appearance of Jesus. Okay. Fourth fact is that um, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was a, at one point Saul, was a diehard um, um, enemy of Christ, of, of Christians. And then all of a sudden, after a while of imprisoning them and beating them and you know killing them, he then has a does a one eighty and becomes a um, a bold proclaimer in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so his life change is what many scholars agree is legitimate. It's real. Now, why they don't know, but they just say that's real. And then James, the brother of Jesus, also who was a skeptic, also becomes a believer. So. Keep in mind, these are five facts that are all just like normal kinds of things, right? Like even the third fact that I mentioned, which is that the disciples had experiences where they believed Jesus appeared to them. That's not a fact where these atheist scholars are saying Jesus did appear, but rather that they believed he appeared, okay? Mm-hmm. So, you, so you have these five facts, and then you ask the question, okay, if if skeptical non-Christian scholars acknowledge that these five facts are true, what's the best explanation for those five facts? What can account for all of them? And so what happens is then you start going through all of the naturalistic explanations, right? Like, oh, maybe the disciples stole the body, which, by the way, if you read the Gospels, that's what um, – the, uh, the chief priest tried to bribe the soldiers to, to suggest that that's what happened because mm-hmm. they noticed they all, te- they all acknowledged that the tomb was missing, yeah. uh, Jesus' body. So they wanted to invent a story, and that was the story they tried to invent. Mm-hmm. So maybe Jesus' disciples you know, stole the body. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Maybe Jesus swooned, <laughs> died. He just kind of passed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they hallucinated, right? There's all these explanations, and when you evaluate whether those explanations can account for all five facts, you discover that they don't explain those facts. And we Mm. could, if you wanted, we could walk through any one of those explanations. Yeah. So what ends up happening is only the the suggestion that Christ actually rose from the grave um, would would be a hypothesis that can explain all five facts. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's that's what the minimal facts argument is in a nutshell. I just kind of gave you an overview, but we can kind of dig into the weeds if you wanted. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, by the way, for just laying that out clearly, concisely, um, and representing it really well. Um, as far as I see things, um, you mentioned a couple of these like objections uh, that people would have or alternative explanations besides a bodily resurrection that might explain some of these facts. 
I want, I did want to have uh, you address them, uh, you know, if you're up for it, because some of them are relevant to our context as well. So mm. what, I, what I would hear from a more uh, secular, atheistic Norwegian is um, they, they would really lean on the objections of like, well, listen, the disciples uh, were probably just lying. They probably just made up the story to be famous or spread a religion or an ideology around or because they were disappointed that their savior and Messiah died um, a shameful public death. So, I mean, to them, it just kind of seems more likely that like, hey, people tell lies all the time for things they want to be true or want to convince other people to be true. How would you address that objection? Right. So if the disciples just lied, in other words, they just made up the story about the resurrection, is that, is yeah, that they the, just made it up. Yeah. yeah. So the problem with that hypothesis is that it doesn't account for the five facts that atheist scholars acknowledge to be true. And one of those facts mm. is the uh, fact number two, which is the, that the tomb of Jesus was found to be empty. Mm. So suppose they lied and made up a story about a resurrected Jesus. Well, anybody could just go to the tomb and be like, uh, guys, look, he's right there, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that hypothesis is inconsistent with the fact that we know it to be true. Also, um, the uh, third fact, which is that the disciples had experiences in which they believed that Jesus appeared to them. Mm-hmm. What I didn't tell you about that fact is they were so convinced that Jesus appeared to them that every single one of them were tortured and um, uh Persecuted and many of them were killed. I think, with the exception of John, was not killed. But um, we have, you know, a lot of um, evidence that they were they were persecuted and martyred for their belief mm. that Jesus appeared to them. Well, yeah. think about this: Why would they do that? <laughs> mm. Why would they hold a and believe a lie? Okay, that they knew to be false to the point of being persecuted and dying. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, most people, yeah, they'll tell a lie, but the minute you get, uh, you know, put a knife up to their neck, they'll be like, okay, all right, I'm just kidding, you know, no, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> I made it up, right? Well, not one of these people who were not like CIA trained, you know, they weren't, you know, <laughs> uh, they didn't have FBI interrogation techniques, you know, right. so they could like withstand, you know, waterboarding and torture and what, like, no, these are just ordinary yeah. people. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. every single one of them went, to the to death, believing this lie, mm. and not you know capitulating to the pressure to say no 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 it's not true. So notice this objection that these people are raising or this alternative hypothesis doesn't make sense of um, uh, fact number two, which is the fact that the tomb was empty, and number three that Jesus' disciples believed he rose and appeared to them. Mm. By the way, it also doesn't make sense of fact number four, which is that the Apostle Paul had a massive conversion. Because think about mm. it, even if they were lying, why would the Apostle Paul believe them? Yeah. He would just kill them. Right. Right? Yeah. He could just go to the tomb and prove that, 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 that Jesus' body was still there, and that would quell any kind of rumors or you know, uh, story that's going to start being spread about this. Right. Mm. So it's kind of like... It doesn't work. Mm. It's kind of like with, I like that response of how it doesn't make sense of fact number four, not to 
fill this video with too many controversial topics, but it's kind of like when people say the U.S. faked the moon landing, uh, right. yet our number one enemy and superpower, Russia, didn't, you know, didn't prove us wrong. They had to admit and confess that right. we actually did land on the moon. And so it's kind of like that, like the one person um, of the many people who were doing this, but Saul of Tarsus would have been like close to the top of the list of the top people who would have uh, set out to disprove this. And uh, not even he could. He eventually uh, uh, became a believer. Well, and I really um, appreciate the distinction that you made, Alan, about um, the sincerity of the people who believed. So sometimes in these kind of discussions, you'll hear, well, religious extremists, um, they're willing to die for, stu- for stuff all the time. I don't, what would be the difference? And the difference mm-hmm. is, what, as you pointed out, that each of these, each of these apostles and, each, uh, and Paul, even the last of the apostles, they all went to their death believing not just something they'd been tricked into, but something that they witnessed themselves. So they weren't right. saying, I trust so much in Steve's testimony that I'm willing to die for mm-hmm. it. They're talking about what they claim to see with their own eyes. And Paul, I think, is, um, of course, such an excellent example of that. Like He was happy to persecute and even to the point of death, these, this blasphemous, sectarian, weird group of Jews. Like He had no problem attacking and persecuting them for him to convert and then um, remain sincere about his own beliefs based on his own experience is just so different. It's not just, it's it's a different kind of thing, not just a difference of degree, but it's a different kind of thing than being willing to die for a belief that turns out to be false. Mm -hmm. Cameron, that's a great point. And actually one of the, uh, the, the way that that, objection to that point you're bringing up is often expressed to me as people point out about the 9-11 terrorists, right? Mm-hmm. So these are people who were willing to die for their belief. So how are the disciples any different? And the point that you made is exactly right. The 9-11 terrorists weren't in a position to know whether their beliefs were true or false. Right. They, they could have been tricked and whatever, right? But that's not the case with the disciples, right? Mm-hmm. They were the ones who allegedly invented the lie, right? Right. Mm. So they knew it was a lie and still went to their death. Like yeah. people don't mm. typically do that. Yes, well, they um, might go. They might go to their death because they believe it's true, right? But not if you know it's false, <laughs> right? Because among the among the beliefs that they were being persecuted for were things like, no, 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 I had lunch with Jesus last week. Right. Mm. Mm. Yeah, great point. Yeah, wonderful. Really, really appreciate you mentioning that distinction. Um, I want to kind of go to another objection. Um, And this one is, uh, it's it's expressed in different ways depending on who I'm talking to, if I'm talking to a Muslim versus if I'm talking to someone who's more secular. But it's kind of like, like if I were to play advocate real quick, I'd be like, Alan, like, all that information that you're bringing, all these minimal facts, you just got them from the Gospels. So, of course, the Gospels are going to say, you know, these things explain the data the best or these they're going to present evidence in a biased way. Like, you can't trust the Gospels because, I don't know, who, who even wrote them? Haven't they been changed a bunch of times? Like, the, that's kind of how that objection kind of comes out is that there's this general skepticism when approaching the gospels, then they're like, Hey, you guys, this is, you believe it's the word of God. Uh, I don't believe they're reliable. So I know that that's a huge topic. Um, yeah. but how don't, how about we unpack some of it at least? Sure. To, 
for conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's no, it's a fair objection. And um, the, the beauty about the minimal facts argument is it does not presume that gospels are the divine word of God, inerrant, mm-hmm. and all this stuff like that. In fact, it just presumes that they're typical ancient documents that any scholar, any historian could evaluate like they do any other ancient documents and and just use them as they would anything else. So there's um, it doesn't presume any of that. And that's why I pointed out at the beginning that these five facts are not just five facts that, that are part of the Gospels and the Word of God. They're five facts that non-Christian scholars mm. and historians attest to be trustworthy and true. Mm. So, for example, um, Gerard Ludeman, who's an atheist New Testament scholar, um, uh, with regards to fact number, I think it was three, uh, see, one, yeah, three, where it says that Jesus, I'm sorry, that the disciples had uh, experiences where they believed Jesus appeared to them. Mm-hmm. Gerard mm-hmm. Ludeman says this, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Hmm. So this is an atheist, right? And he's a scholar, mm-hmm. and he's saying, no, no, it's historically certain Mm-hmm. that that fact is true because he approaches the Gospels not as the Word of God, but just as ancient documents. And mm-hmm. these documents seem to be credible on a, for a whole bunch of reasons, like the fact that they make frequent references to um, archaeological facts, people, dates, and all these things have been corroborated by external evidence. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, yeah, whoever wrote these things took a lot of care. Mm-hmm. To be mindful of dates, events, figures, you know, and they get them right, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is why these these non Christian scholars um, approach the gospels not with this like, oh, these are just gospels that are made up, you know, religious texts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're religious texts, and they don't presume they're the word of God, but they're still real documents mm-hmm. written by real people to real other people in real cities, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a guy named Paul, and he did write a letter to a church in Ephesus. Like, right. nobody can test that because mm-hmm. they know in the first century. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, in the first century. Yes, uh, right. Yeah. So that's, so that's why. Yeah, they don't. Um, I mean, I understand the objection. Like, oh yeah, this, you're just assuming it's the word of God, but this approach does not assume that. Yeah, you have and, to make another argument to show that it's the word of God, yeah. but this argument doesn't require that. Oh, and that's beautiful. You made the point at the beginning that the facts that you refer to are ordinary non-miraculous facts. So you didn't look at right. the book of John and say, right here, the tomb, uh, the tomb was empty, and then here's the risen Jesus. You, say, you uh, refer to ordinary facts, and then what's the best explanation of those, not what's the best right. explanation of, these, uh, of the obviously supernatural facts. Right. Mm-hmm. So Jacob, does that address uh, that objection that you're bringing up? Oh, I think absolutely. I okay. think one of the things uh, specific that comes up is that, especially with a Muslim audience as well, is uh, the Quran says the, that the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament have been corrupted over time. And the way that uh, the message it originally had when Paul, John, and the bros wrote down the New Testament hasn't been preserved. It's been corrupted. Um, how would you address that? I think, because I know... Like I have ideas for this conversation and I know that that's also like a really big topic as well. Um, but why don't you go ahead, like 
how would you address that, like with a Muslim in particular? Yeah. Now, just so I, I'm clear, you, did you say that the Quran teaches that the Hebrews, uh, the the Hebrew Bible and the Gospels are corrupted? Is that what you said? Oh, uh, was that I, your? Deck? I believe I did say that, but I believe I'm yeah. incorrect. Actually, I believe I misspoke. Yeah. But yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, if, if someone were to say that, especially a yeah. Muslim, I would I would say really. Um, that's an interesting claim that the Quran yeah. says the Bible is mm. corrupted. I said, could you show me where you found that in the Quran? Sure. Yes. Because it turns out the Quran does not teach that. In fact, mm. um, the Quran teaches the exact opposite and in mm. the most strongest way possible. Uh, the Quran teaches actually that the Bible is the un. Well, let me say, wait, let me back up here. When I say Bible, I mean. Um, the Quran makes reference to three specific uh, portions of the Bible, the Torah, the Psalms, and the Gospel. Okay? It, it, it names them. Um, and I would argue that the Quran teaches that the Torah, Psalms, and Gospel are the uncorrupted, trustworthy revelation of Allah. Mm. And actually, this is a pivotal point that I make when I'm talking to a Muslim, uh, mm. uh, because... It, it addresses the most central uh, conflict. And by conflict, I just mean like an uh, idea conflict, not like an mm-hmm. actual physical. It addresses the central conflict that um, a Muslim and a Christian have when they're having a conversation about religion. So at the very beginning, when we, before we started talking mm-hmm. about the minimal facts argument, you asked me about how I'd present uh, the resurrection to a Muslim. And I said, mm-hmm. I would just go to the Gospels maybe John three sixteen through 18, mm-hmm. and just read what it says about the nature of salvation of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I said to you, Jacob, I said, yeah, now what objection are you going to present to me? Because I know what that's going to be. And that is, mm-hmm. if you say to a Muslim, read this in the gospel, they're going to say, kind of like what you just said, the mm-hmm. gospels are corrupted. The Bible's right. corrupted. It's mm-hmm. either been intentionally changed by Christians and Jews or as a result of their irresponsibility, they allowed it to get corrupted. Either mm-hmm. way, we can't trust what the Bible says, even if we just mm-hmm. narrow it down to the Gospels, the Torah, and the Psalms. And my response to them is, actually, um, the, the Quran teaches the opposite. Mm-hmm. And the reason mm-hmm. this is so powerful is because for the Muslim, the Quran is the highest authority. There is no one and no thing that can trump the authority of the Quran in the mind of a Muslim. Mm -hmm. And so if I can show the Muslim that the Quran teaches the opposite, that it's the divine revelation of Allah, that it is um, authoritative and intended to be believed, and that um, it's that the Quran is referring to the Bible, which was in circulation at the time the Quran was written. Mm-hmm. So if I can show the youth those three things from the Quran to the Muslim, man, then now the Muslim's going to have to accept uh, what the Gospels say. Mm-hmm. So that's the approach I take is I leverage their commitment to the Quran to make my point that the Bible, specifically the Gospel, is a trustworthy revelation. And then once that's established, I can then go back to what does the Gospel say about the nature of the resurrection or about the nature of the Trinity, or about the nature of um, the gospel. Yeah, that is... If you want to see those two, we can do that too, if you wanted. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that's really awesome. I'm going to have to um, make sure I get that reference about uh, when it talks, like, for what it says about uh, the Gospels and the Hebrew Bible being uncorrupted or the Word of God and, and that. So, because that's really, uh, that's really powerful. Like, yeah, I love that very much. Jacob, let me, let me say this. Yeah, it, it to me it's so uh, evident in the Quran that it teaches this that I believe if a Muslim had never heard of the Bible hmm. and they just opened up the Quran and read from start to finish, they would never walk away with the idea that the any part of the Bible was corrupted. They would hmm. come away with the idea that Allah has given different prophets revelation. He gave, yeah. uh, you know, he gave. Um, David the Psalms, he gave Moses the Torah, he gave uh, Muhammad the Quran, and he gave Jesus the Gospel. Mm-hmm. And that all of these revelations are true, binding, and authoritative. That's mm-hmm. the way. But it's only because of Muslim culture they've invented this claim that the Bible is corrupted. Gotcha. But I'll tell you, no Muslim since Muhammad until the first 400 years ever mm-hmm. believed the Bible is corrupted. In fact, Muhammad himself, I have his biography right there, the earliest extent mm. biography. And when you read his biography, every time he's confronted with the gospel or the Torah, he addresses it with reverence. He says, mm. bring, the, bring the Torah right here. And he takes his seat that he's on, gets off of it, rests it on the seat and says, I believe in thee and in him who revealed thee. Mm-hmm. And Muhammad routinely, when he's engaging Jews and Christians, challenges these Christians and Jews to obey the commands found in their Torah and in their gospel. Mm -hmm. So this thing about the Bible being corrupted, this is a modern cultural invention has nothing to do with what the Quran or even Muhammad taught. That's so interesting because it's so universal is the thing. Like I, I hear it everywhere. I hear it with so many people I talk to. I hear it on the internet all the time. I've heard it from Muslims in America. Like it's so universal and so circulated. And, um, what I've often done, like how to, how to address that is, uh, I briefly get into, uh, areas about textual criticism and how we know that, uh, the text has been preserved. Um, but kind of speaking about this, um, idea of, using the Quran and what it says about Jesus and the gospels to kind of leverage, leverage in a sense, the conversation, right? Right. I know the Quran does talk about Jesus as servant of God, a prophet of Allah who God did, uh, or Allah did miracles through. And when I talk to them about the deity of Christ, for example, I often appeal to Jesus being a prophet and say, well, this is, these are his words in the gospel defending his deity. And, we have to believe the words of the prophet, right? If the prophet says, I am, or if he says, I and the father are one, uh, exactly. this is a prophet of Allah saying that. So mm. I'm not going to disobey the prophet. And uh, sometimes I get interesting responses to that. Uh, Cameron, Cameron, I wanted to give you a chance to ask, well, first of all, you or Bailey can say whatever you want based on what we've said in the last half an hour, because, uh, this has been so much fun so far, if I can just say. But Cameron, I wanted to go ahead and give you the floor to ask anything you wanted to. Uh, you could dive into any of the topics we've talked about so far or anything relevant to 
evangelism we've done out here. So go ahead, Cameron. Oh, goodness. That's a big floor to hand to me. I think. <laughs> sure. Um, so I love, uh, I love your response. And I love that we can go to, we can take their own textual authority and from there build a bridge to the actual divine word of God. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, as you know, it's true with Christians also, we aren't always um, sort of excellent scholars in our own religious text. So we get some, some common, um, common responses about Jesus and his deity, and, I, and I, can, I can rattle off a whole bunch of them. But one of the, I'll, I'll think of one, and then I'll shut up because Bailey hasn't had the floor at all. So I'll ask just one, and then we'll give the floor to Bailey. Um, but it, it uh, is in direct response to your minimal facts presentation of um, uh, the argument for the historicity of the resurrection, and that is, yeah, well, Jesus didn't die on the cross. That was a that was a lie. It was an invention. Something. I think you, you used the word swoon. Whatever happened to Jesus on the cross, he didn't uh, he didn't die, and therefore there's no need of a resurrection. That's something that I hear from um, from our Muslim neighbors from time yeah. to time. And if I can just say real quick, Alan is here in Norway specifically in Oslo, um, yeah. the Amahidia branch of Islam is the most evangel- uh, evangelistic branch out here. They are the fastest growing sect out here. And um, uh, if you're familiar with them, right, they, they like really firmly hold to this fact, this idea that Jesus survived his crucifixion in some way or another. So uh, that's definitely super relevant to our immediate context here in Oslo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. So um, let's just, so you can take that objection and that alternative hypothesis to the resurrection um, and uh, apply it to the minimal facts argument. In other words, see, does it make sense of those five facts? Uh, But before we do, let me just point out something about this particular claim that Jesus didn't die, but he swooned. Okay. Mm -hmm. I want you to think of what kind of absurdities you would have to believe are true in order to believe that Jesus didn't die, but he passed out. He swooned. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So So before we even get to the minimal facts, just consider these absurdities. Number one, you would have to believe that the process of crucifixion did not kill Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's just bizarre in itself. If you know anything about Roman crucifixion, like this is, Mm -hmm. the whole point of that process was to kill a person Mm -hmm. and they had been doing it for for many, many years and were experts at it. So you'd have to believe, first of all, that crucifixion didn't kill Jesus, which is kind of absurd, but all right. Then you'd have to believe that the Roman soldiers were mistaken about whether Jesus was dead or alive, which again, it's like, well, these guys are really good at knowing that because that's their whole job. Okay? Mm-hmm. You'd have to also realize or believe that no one who was preparing Jesus for burial detected that he was still breathing and had a pulse. Mm-hmm. Now, you might think, well, sure, Alan, isn't that possible? It might be possible for you and I in our modern world because typically when someone dies, we don't handle the body and prepare mm-hmm. it, right? We call 911 or whatever you know, phone number to you know, take care of that. Mm-hmm. And so we don't feel a physical body. But in the first century, if your family member died, you were going to handle their body and prepare it for burial. Mm-hmm. And so you became acquainted with what a body feels like, mm-hmm. how it gets colder, it gets stiffer, it changes a different color. 
they're not breathing, they don't have a pulse. Like, and you're telling me no one noticed as they're preparing for his body for burial that he was still breathing and had a pulse mm-hmm. and his body was warm, right? Mm-hmm. You'd have to believe further that despite being scourged, beaten, and crucified, somehow while in the cool of the tomb, he wakes up. Mm-hmm. You'd have to then believe that he somehow manages on the brink of death to have the strength to roll away the stone. And while on the brink of death, overpower the soldiers who are watching the tomb. Mm-hmm. And then somehow you have to believe you'd have to believe that he could hobble across town after having nails dri- driven through his feet, walk up to the disciples' house, knock on their door, and they open <laughs> it. He says, "Look, I've conquered death," <laughs> and that they would be somehow convinced. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe they would think you're alive. Sure, they might believe he's alive, but would they believe that he like somehow came from the dead and conquered death itself? No, mm. they'd call nine one one. Like he would need it. He would need it. Be in need of medical attention. Mm-hmm. Like seriously. Yeah. So this whole idea that you could just swoon and that just somehow you know you say the word swoon or he passed out and that somehow explains everything is rather an absurd kind of claim when you consider what would have to mm. be true. In order for that to work out, okay? But now, having said all that, even if we were to accept all those absurdities, again, here's the question. What what are those minimal facts, those five minimal facts that we believe to be true according to secular Mm -hmm. scholarship? Does this theory make sense of those five facts? Well, look at the fact number one. Jesus died by crucifixion, right? Um. That right there, that first fact, mm-hmm. which we know to be true, believed by atheist scholars, and by the way, a whole bunch of also uh, like Josephus, uh, Tacitus, and all these Jewish and Roman historians and poem writers and philosophers in the first century and second century all have written about the fact that Jesus was crucified and killed. Like nobody seems to deny this. Mm-hmm. So just that first minimal fact alone rejects the soon hypothesis. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, would the tomb be found empty? Yeah. So that 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 fact definitely is consistent with the idea that Jesus swooned. But again, you'd have to believe he somehow managed to wake up, roll away the stone, overpower the soldiers, whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. What about fact number three? Would the disciples of Jesus have believed that he died, rose again, and conquered death? No, nah, probably not. They'd probably just think, Dang, how did you survive crucifixion? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But they wouldn't believe that he died and rose again because he would just be a bloody mangled mess, you know? Mm-hmm. What about Paul? Would the apostle Paul, or Saul of Tarsus at the time, would he have been convinced by this? Would he have a 180 degree change in his life because mm-hmm. someone survived crucifixion? Like, no, he might be intrigued by that, but he wouldn't believe that he's the Lord of life and he's conquered mm-hmm. death. Yeah. So again, so many of these facts that we know to be true um, are fly in the face of the swoon theory, you know. So, so to the Muslim, I would say number one, um, secular historians are do not agree with what you're saying that he swooned. Mm-hmm. The um, the minimal facts argument doesn't agree with you that he swooned. The Gospels, which were a true revelation from Allah, does not agree with you that he swooned. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. in yeah. what sense are you in any way justified in sustaining this objection that Jesus swooned when the when all this evidence is against your position? 
Yeah. You know? mm. Yeah. That's excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how, um, but it might be, you know, it might be worth asking somebody one day. Um, and I try, I, and I laugh. I don't, I don't mean to like laugh really. Um, but I think, uh, the way that you put it, especially like talking about the absurdity of like all these things that would have to happen the way that the, th- the thing I thought of was it wouldn't explain another minimal fact that I've heard uh, was that the disciples after Jesus's conf- uh, crucifixion had like a crisis of faith. They deserted him. They ran away to their own homes. Peter denied him three times and regretted it, uh, uh, you know, obviously, but they had a crisis of faith and, then for some reason, three days later had this restoration of faith. And then 40 days later are preaching in the middle of Jerusalem right. about this victory of the Messiah. doesn't make any sense if a bloodied and beaten, like broken Messiah just comes knocking on their door. Well, probably not with his hand because it's probably can't feel it anymore, but it just doesn't make any sense. Their loss of faith. And with the swoon theory, that doesn't explain their restoration of faith afterwards. So, uh, right. Yeah. By the way, interesting. There's a um, the there's a medical journal called the Journal of American Medical Association. It's Mm. a standard medical journal journal that scientists and doctors contribute articles on about like heart medicine, strokes, you know, bone diseases, and whatever. It's just a standard medical journal. I used to work as a physical therapist. And that would be a journal that I would normally read for medical uh, research. Well, uh, a couple of decades ago, a, a team of physicians and a theologian got together and they wrote, and by the way, this is a secular journal, okay? It's not a Christian journal. Yeah. Some scientists and doctors and the theologian came together and they, they wrote, uh, they did a research article on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. What, what they did was from the medical perspective, they asked, Let's take the details that we know from the Gospels about the nature of his crucifixion, as well as the archaeological information and historical information we have about, resur- about crucifixions, sorry. And let's evaluate, would Jesus have survived such a thing? And mm-hmm. I, I have a copy of this article, and uh, they have pictures of the way, you know, they drove the nails into people's hands and and the the piercing of Jesus's side with the sword, with the um, spear and how both blood and water appeared to come out and right. you know modern medical doctors know oh that makes perfect sense because when you're tortured you have you go into shock and your body's heart sac begins to fill with fluid so it makes sense that when his heart was pierced that sack was pierced also, mm-hmm. so blood comes out, and then the fluid in the sack would be more liquidy, like watery-like. So that's why it explains both blood and water coming out. I mean, basically, they go through all of those details and say, modern medical evidence concludes that Jesus Christ was dead when he was taken down from the cross. Mm. Like, that's their medical evaluation. It's very fascinating they even did this, but they came to the same conclusion. Mm. Yeah, there's no way anyone would survive that. Mm-hmm. And based on what the, the Gospels describe happened to him, he was definitely dead. And that's another one of those sort of mundane facts, right? How would the how would, as we hear it put so so often, first first century goat farmers, how would they have known that if your pericardium gets ruptured by a spear, that uh, after mm-hmm. having been tortured and experiencing shock, that then water leaves your body as well as blood? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, <laughs> great point. <laughs> Absolutely. Ah, it's just absolutely wonderful. Uh, Bailey, my friend, I wanted to give you the chance to 
ask anything or make any comments, um, yeah, go for it. Yeah, um, I have a question that I think will be a quick question um, and then a comment. Because um, I've heard the minimal facts theory from you and you know other YouTube apologists that I watch. Um, and I hear people say often in those videos, like, um, scholarship mostly agrees about this thing, or, you know, like, as you presented the facts, um, you said secular scholars agree that this is the view that they take away, um, when they examine this evidence. Um, but could you, like, do you have a website or anything to point, um, me to that actually shows an analysis of scholarship? Um, cause all I have at this point, like if I were to bring up this, like if I were to present the minimal facts theory to someone, then all I could say is, well, I talked to Alan and he knows his stuff and I trust him. <laughs> um, and he said that these guys said this, um, or I talked, I watched Frank Turek or I watched Mike Winger and their videos say this. So do you have, cause none of those guys, I haven't asked them the question. So do you have, um, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So the two people who've done the kind of the, the primary research on this would be uh, Gary Habermas and mm-hmm. Michael Lacona. Um, so they've co-written a book uh, called I don't know the Resurrection of Jesus or something mm-hmm. really obvious like that. <laughs> and then, uh, Michael Lacona also did a his own volume, uh, his own book, which is um, yeah, it's over there. It's really thick. But it's called a, a, a histiographical approach to the resurrection, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, so both of the both Habermas and Lycona's like books cite the primary scholarship that's um, that we're referring mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. So Gary um, Habermas also maintains a bibliography on his website. That's oh, okay. as yeah. thorough as I, you I can imagine. Suggest- it's it's like absolutely oh, up to date. Sweet. With, yeah, yeah, it's a very yeah. Good. Come on. Yeah, I was going to suggest that too. Yeah, his. His website is uh, probably got that information as well. So that's thanks for pointing that out, Cameron. Yeah, sorry, um, I didn't mean yeah, to interrupt so those, you. Those are two. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just said I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt <laughs> you. If you were getting to it, I just got all excited. I don't get to oh, talk no, about no, Gary okay. Habermas no, very fine. often. So yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. no, no, that's great. Um, yeah, so I, I know both of those guys, and um, yeah, they're they're the, they're the real deal, and they've they've done the research. So. Um, what ends up happening is I don't normally get people say to me, well, show me that scholarship, whatever. Usually, mm-hmm. I, and partly it's because I'm presenting it, and when I present it, I actually have pictures and quotes from the actual mm-hmm. um, scholars themselves. Mm-hmm. So like Gerd Ludeman, right? John Dominic Crossan, and, and these people who I'm citing, I literally just have their picture, their book, their quote, and I'm like, here's what they say. Mm-hmm. Like, these aren't... So it, they don't typically call into question that I'm just making this stuff up. But mm-hmm. um, I suppose if someone did, like you said, Bailey, said to me, well, where, what are those articles that these people are saying this in? Yeah, I'd probably say, okay, well, I don't have it off the top of my head or have it with me in my car, mm-hmm. but I'll just, how about I just email it to you tonight when I get home or, or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, sometimes you have to go to that if they're really, really skeptical that you're being honest. Mm-hmm. But I nine times out of ten that never happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's thank you. But you, that's but you, perfect. Can, you can, you, but it's providable, so yeah. that's good to know. That's that's mainly for my conscience because I'm I'm like I trust these guys enough to go and like say their stuff. Um, but like I feel like I need to know that they have more grounding than that. So just I'm gonna click on that link for the bibliography. Well, that's great. Yeah, I would so go to go to Habermas's website or just get their mm-hmm. book. 
It's it is really good. Mm-hmm. It, it is good for your conscience. I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't. I wouldn't downplay that sort of like I need to see it myself sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like I'm very skeptical, and it's probably probably why I turned out to be an apologist because when I wasn't mm-hmm. a Christian. I didn't believe a thing Christians were telling me mm-hmm. and I had to see it for myself. But then when I started to investigate all these claims and to get, like you said, Bailey, I want to see the actual say scholar or the actual researcher, the actual argument or, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, Oh, oh boy. Wow. I think there's actually legitimacy right. to all of this, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what eventually caused me to commit my life to Christ in college because I was confronted with the evidence and thinking that there was no evidence, I found the opposite to be true. You know? mm-hmm. I think that's such a great, 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 great point of a healthy like skepticism of like not believing like everything you hear of going and investigating and having an, uh, an open mind, but a reasonable mind where it's like, hey, I want to learn the actual evidence. I want to confront it. And I would actually encourage any Christians who are listening, right, like to like – all the stuff that like Alan is talking about, like for me and my faith journey, like really solidifies me in like my faith in Christ and really edifies me in how I read the Bible in its historical context, how I evangelize to other faiths. It, it comes down to even how I pre- like prepare a sermon, like of all, all this stuff. And so I would encourage you guys, any Christians who are listening to go seek that stuff out, learn like why there are great reasons to be a Christian, learn about what the evidence for the faith is. Uh, Alan, I wanted to ask you uh, if anyone listening did want to explore more about how to defend their faith in general, learn the minimal facts argument or whatever, uh, where can they go? Well, I'd I'd recommend our website, uh, str.org, but more specifically at the top right, there's a place where it says subscribe and my boss, Greg Kokel, uh, who wrote Tactics, um, mm-hmm. he produces a training article and emails or snail mails out the article for free uh, every once every two months. It's called Solid Ground. And if you go to our website, you can subscribe to that. Um, and uh, I, I mean, it's awesome because, I mean, Greg is so incredibly um, intelligent and also a gifted writer. He writes really well. And, um, uh, so I'd recommend doing that at the very least. Um, I mean, you can follow my podcast. I, I have really short podcast episodes are like eight minutes long and I just tackle one point, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, on transgenderism or on mm-hmm. the resurrection or whatever it might be like, and just kind of give a nugget of truth about that thing. Mm-hmm. So that's another way again, free. Uh, but our website alone, man, we have like probably thousands of articles, videos, um, that are, are all just really, they're all free and, and helpful. You can just learn from at your at your own pace. Just do a search <laughs> on whatever topic you want and you'll probably get a plethora of responses. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. We'll go ahead and make sure to put a link for all that uh, down below. Cameron, right you want to interrupt real quick? Yeah, yeah, it sounds like you're wrapping Please up. Please go for Bailey it. had one other thing he wanted to say and I just want to make sure we didn't get, didn't get buried before Bailey got to get both words out of his mouth. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll try to make it quick. Um, I just wanted to add that I appreciate like throughout the whole video because I've been like taking mental notes the whole time, um, and I'm just soaking up all the knowledge you're dispelling unto us. Um, so really appreciate everything you went through. Um, but I think most of all was um, it was really valuable to hear how focused you were through it all on. Um, 
that you're talking to a person and like keeping your audience in mind. Um, so whether it's a group of people or a single person, um, you're always saying like, well, in a Muslim mindset, we need to back up and we need to um, re- reevaluate how we're going to approach this. Because um, I think just um, especially for Christians who don't have many degrees attached to their names or many years of research or many books read or anything like that, um, evangelism seems like a scary, impossible task. Um, but in truth, evangelism, um, the, like the very heart of it and the very beginning of it is just um, evaluating who the person is before you and reaching out to them with the gospel and um, giving the news that we know very well and know intimately in our own lives, um, trying to bring that news to their own ears. So, um, yeah, I just loved your focus like throughout everything, even though you're going through stuff that's very high IQ, high level operating stuff that is above my head. I'm like trying to get notes from it. Um, but throughout it all, like your focus was very fixed on, okay, our audience, our audience is always our starting point and then let's go. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate that, Bailey. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a, an important thing to consider, you know, whoever you're talking mm-hmm. to, of course, based on where they're coming from, um, you kind of have to adapt. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things that I learned from Tactics, Greg Kokel's book, is this thing called the Columbo Tactic, which is based on the TV show Columbo, with the, the character Lieutenant Columbo, who all he does is he asks questions, lots of questions. Mm-hmm. And questions are so disarming assuming you don't ask him like an FBI interrogator. But if you ask him like Columbo does the TV show, he's just so nonchalant and calm and relaxed, just asking questions. And that helps you to learn about the other person. And then once you understand the person better, then it helps you to modify how you're going to then engage them. Hmm. So um, I love what Francis Schaeffer says. Um, he says, if I have only an hour with someone, he says, I'll spend the first 55 minutes asking them questions and mm-hmm. finding out what is troubling their heart and their mind. And then in the last five minutes, I'll share something of the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to do, especially in light of what you're saying, Bailey, like you might not know what their background is. You might not know your audience, but by taking the time to first spend, you know, 55 minutes out of the hour, just as an example, to ask questions and find out like, what do they believe? And you know, tell me your story and tell me who you are and let me understand you well. And just, love them and and find out about them, man, when you do that, even if you only spend just five minutes at the end sharing something, Mm -hmm. you'll know exactly what you need to share at that end because Mm -hmm. you first took the time to invest in them and find out about them. And so I always encourage people, man, you know, um, yeah, always adapt what you are saying based on your audience. But if you don't know who your audience is, man, you got to take time to Mm -hmm. first you know, ask questions and learn about them and show them that you care about them and know them before you start, you know, talking. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful, wonderful, wonderful principle and wonderful encouragement. So, uh, Alan, we got to go ahead and wrap up for today, but I want to speak on behalf of Word First Ministries to thank you so, 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 so much for being here and offering your time and your wisdom for us and our listeners and anyone who is listening. If you are a Christian, I hope that this enriched your faith in the resurrection and just uh, to let you know that there are good reasons for believing that Jesus rose from the dead, that he died for our sins, and that he lives today. And I hope it encourages you to investigate 
some more. And if you're not a Christian, I hope you send us a DM. I hope you comment on this video and I hope uh, you invite us into the conversation with you as you keep exploring. And we hope to see you again next time. God bless. Thank you so much for listening to Word First Radio. If you like the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. If you want to learn more about Word First and how you can support the ministry spiritually and financially, check us out at wordfirst.us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Word First Radio, and we'll see you again next week. God bless.